0: One of the most disarming passages of Scripture, disarming in that it takes away our most prized excuses for falling into sin, is 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. We closed last week's message with that verse. We begin this week with that pivotal verse. Because it is here in no uncertain terms that Paul tells us that God is faithful and that our problems are common problems. They're not unique. Others have gone through the same things. And that our pressures are controlled pressures. God keeps our trials and temptations under control. He won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able to resist. And in addition to that, He always provides us with a way of escape. He sees to it that we have a way out of tempting situations. He provides the way out. Of course, we still have to take it. So when it comes to temptations, there are three things we need to remember. What we're going through is not unique God won't let us be tempted beyond our limits. And God always provides a way out. Okay? Paul has... My beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, just as he has told us to flee from immorality, so now he tells us to flee from idolatry. There must be something awfully tempting about idolatry. So what is it? And what is idolatry? You know, I think the simplest definition of idolatry is replacing God with something else or putting Him in second place. It's allowing anyone or anything to become more important to us than is God. Now, for us, idolatry can take any number of forms. For the Corinthians it was most readily visible in the pagan temples. You know, they were constantly tempted by the activities surrounding the worship of pagan idols. They'd been raised with it. Most of their non-Christian friends worshipped in the temple, and the social life of the entire community revolved around the temple. So Paul warns them, to think carefully about what he has to say. He says, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. He says, listen up, flee from idolatry. Now, he wasn't afraid that the Christians would wake up one morning and say, I think I'll worship an idol today. He didn't expect them to change their minds about who God is and revert to idol worship philosophically. But he knew that the temptation to hang out at the pagan temples was strong, even for Christians. That's where the action was, where the parties were held. The best deals on meat could be found there because that's where the priests sold the sacrificial leftovers. And that's where the kids could meet their friends and and just hang out. The temple was the place to go. And the Corinthian Christians knew that. It's where they used to go. No doubt, most of them had stopped going there when they became Christians. But now, apparently, some had decided that they had become strong enough to handle the temptations that they would face there. They knew the idols were nothing more than pieces of wood or stone or metal. They weren't real gods. And they had discovered that they had real liberty in Christ, that drinking and partying in moderation wasn't prohibited. They could still have fun. And even if they weren't into partying, those meat prices were really good. So they were going back to the temples. Not to worship idols, mind you, but just to take advantage of the fringe benefits of idol worship. Paul says, stop and think for a moment. Use your heads. What's really going on down there? It's idolatry. And you need to flee from idolatry and everything associated with it. Why? Because it destroys fellowship with God. It provokes God to jealousy. And it causes others to. To stumble. He begins by making it clear that idolatry destroys fellowship with Christ. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many. Our one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Since one of the primary temptations in the area of idolatry for the Corinthians, was taking part in the pagan banquets, Paul begins by reminding them of the significance of the Lord's Supper, a banquet they participated in each Lord's Day as Christians. He reminds them that the cup represents the blood of Christ and the bread his body. By partaking of these elements, they were identifying themselves with him in a very personal way. They were demonstrating their oneness with him. And in addition to that, by all partaking of the same bread, all sharing the body of Christ, they became one with each other as well. So their participation in the Lord's Supper demonstrated their oneness with Christ and with other Christians. By the same token, when the Jews celebrated the Passover and other sacrificial meals together, they were demonstrating their oneness with God and all other Jews. The same was true of the pagans at their idolatrous banquets. They were becoming one with their God and with each other. Again, there was nothing demonic about the meat itself. And the idols weren't real gods. But the pagans who sacrificed to those idols thought of them as gods. And Satan delighted in that. And so their sacrifices did become sacrifices to demons because Satan and his hosts were able to use them to draw men away from the one true God. Their banquets, therefore, became a sharing in demonic activity. They were identifying with the powers of darkness who are opposed to the light of the world. Surely, Christians wouldn't want to be identified with demons. Indeed, they cannot and still be identified with Christ. Paul said we cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. We can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now, for the Corinthians, that specifically meant they couldn't take part in the pagan banquets. They couldn't frequent the temple and enjoy the French benefits of idol worship. But how does that apply to us? Well, I was going to say that we don't have a pagan temple in town, but actually we do. I doubt, however, that any of us were tempted to join the Hindus in their recent celebration of Diwali and the burning of an effigy of the demon king. But since idolatry is anything that pushes God into second place, I think we do need to honestly examine whether there is anything in our life that tends to push everything else into second place. What is it that you live for? Is it God? Or is it something else? Do you live for the weekends? Is some recreational pursuit or hobby the the thing that keeps you going? Is your job your God? Is your family? Is your house or camper? Or motorcycle? Is there anything that draws you away from the Lord's table consistently? If there is, you may be partaking of the table of demons without even knowing it. They may have succeeded in making something other than God number one in your life. They may have succeeded in getting you to serve another master. And as Jesus warned us, no man can serve two masters. So, yes, idolatry in any form destroys fellowship with Christ. But that's not all. It provokes God to jealousy. Jealousy. Let's read on a little verse. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? What does that mean? Idolatry makes God jealous. Now, some have a hard time. Justifying God's jealousy, it it sounds like an undesirable characteristic, and most of the time, at least for us, it is. But God makes no apology for being a jealous God. So the kind of jealousy he feels must not be bad. In fact, it could simply be that God knows what will happen to us If he gets crowded out of our life, so he desperately wants to remain number one. Whatever his reason, he makes it clear that idolatry provokes him to jealousy. And the first two commandments make that very clear. In Exodus, we read, Then God spoke. All these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. but Showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. God said he was a jealous God. In fact, when telling his people to avoid the gods of the land through which they would be journeying, he said his name was Jealous. And that to go after other gods was harlotry, the ultimate unfaithfulness to him. So Paul says, don't provoke God to jealousy. By pushing him into second place in your life. If you do, he will fight back. And you're certainly not stronger than God. The prophet Ezekiel also made it clear that God fights back against idolatry. In fact, the bulk of his prophecies were warnings to the Jews about their idolatry and its consequences he told them Jerusalem would be overthrown, the temple destroyed, and they would be killed or taken captive if they didn't repent of their idolatry. What God actually said through him was pretty shocking. And I will set my jealousy against you, that they may deal with you in wrath. They will remove your nose and your ears And your survivors will fall by the sword. They will take your sons and your daughters, and your survivors will be consumed by the fire. They will also strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewels. Thus I shall make your lewdness and your harlotry brought from the land of Egypt to cease from you, so that you will not lift up your eyes to them or remember Egypt anymore." For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give you into the hand of those whom you hate, into the hand of those from whom you are alienated, and they will deal with you in hatred. Take all your property and leave you naked and bare, and the nakedness of your harlotries will be uncovered, both your lewdness and your harlotries. These things will be done to you because you have played the harlot with the nations, because you have defiled yourselves With their idols. Wow. Idolatry provokes God to jealousy. We better be very careful not to allow anything to push God into second place. Because that's a very dangerous place for him to be. In our lives. Flee. From idolatry. Whenever something else starts creeping into first place. Starts demanding an inordinate amount of your time. And you find yourself making everything else revolve around it. Flee from it. It's becoming idolatrous. And idolatry destroys fellowship with Christ, and it provokes God to jealousy. And even if you've not slipped into full-fledged idolatry, if something hasn't actually pushed God into second place in your life, and, and you're convinced it won't, you've still got to watch it. Because any signs of idolatry in your life can cause someone else to stumble verses twenty three through thirty. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the market. Meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone should say to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Paul begins here with a principle that should guide us in all that we do. He says, in essence, it's true. In Christ, we are free to do anything that hasn't been expressly forbidden or violates a clear-cut principle of Scripture. But not everything is profitable. Not everything edifies. Not everything is good for us or for our neighbor. And we must be concerned About our neighbors. In fact, we are to seek their good before our own. This means we may have to limit our liberty for the sake of our neighbor. We've got to view what we do through our neighbor's eyes. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be over scrupulous, paralyzed by the fear that. Someone might misinterpret something that we do in complete innocence. For example, Paul says, when buying meat in the market, there's no need to worry whether or not the butcher got it from the temple. Now, he's already made it clear that they shouldn't frequent the temples themselves to get temple meat, because that would obviously link them to the temple. But if some of the meat in the grocery happened to have come from there, don't worry about it. Don't ask any questions. Now, if they were running a special on Temple Meat and advertised it as such, that would be another story. But there's no need to make an issue out of something that no one else makes an issue out of. It would be like insisting on bills of origin on everything you buy at the mall for fear of buying stolen merchandise. Now, if a guy in a black trench coat tries to sell you a $250 watch for $25, you should ask some questions. But Paul is saying you don't have to be over-scrupulous for your neighbor's sake. And furthermore, you don't have to cut yourself off from everyone who does worship in the temple. If an unbeliever invites you to their house, Paul says, go, if you want to. And he sets a pot roast before you, don't ask any questions. Just enjoy it with him. You know, we've got to associate with those in the world if we hope to share with them what we found in Christ. And we shouldn't make them uncomfortable by questioning everything they do. But if someone makes an issue out of the fact that the pot roast came from the temple, don't eat it. Obviously, it makes a difference to him. You know, maybe he's struggling. Maybe he's struggling with idolatry and its implications for himself. Or he may be testing you to see if your commitment to Christ is stronger than your appetite. Whatever his reason, it's not worth it. Why should you risk coming under judgment or being slandered for doing something that offends a brother, something you don't have to do? What you're doing may not affect you one bit. But if it affects your brother, it's not worth it. If I'm doing something my neighbor interprets as idolatry or is idolatrous in his life, I better watch it. If my neighbor worships Elvis or anyone else and uh, I like him too, I better be careful not to communicate the wrong thing to my neighbor. Now, that doesn't mean I can't listen to his music for fear of being labeled an idolater just because someone worships him. But I better not go off the deep end. I better not buy everything he's done or plaster my car with bumper stickers and my home with posters, creating a shrine to someone others do worship. If my neighbor eats, drinks, and sleeps sports and lets it crowd out everything else in his life, including God, I better be careful not to give him the impression that I worship at the ballpark or the soccer field, too. If my neighbor's a workaholic and puts the job before everything else, it doesn't mean I can't put in a good day's work. But I better make it obvious that the paycheck doesn't control my life. I think the applications are endless. Paul is just saying, be careful. Be careful. Don't give anyone the impression that you are an idol worshiper. That something else in your life comes before God. He concludes with these words, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Let me help you keep your priorities in life straight. I've already reminded you, he says, of what I gladly give up for the sake of others. Be willing to do the same. You know, we've got the privilege of sharing the gospel with our neighbors. Don't blow it by offending them or giving them the wrong impression. Make sure they know how important God is in your life. Now, that doesn't mean you have to quote Scripture to them all the time or pull the name of God into every conversation And you don't have to be a spoil sport taking all the fun out of life. You can enjoy life to the fullest and still live in such a way that it's obvious that you recognize everything you have is a gift from God. And everything you do is done to bring him glory. Keep God first in your life at all times. And you'll be a blessing to others. You will be blessed by God. And you'll be in sweet fellowship with Christ. Give up the table of demons if that's where you've been dining. Don't let anything draw you away from the God who made you, who loves you, and who has redeemed you? Don't let the world or demons charm you with delights that rob you of your resolve to keep Christ at the center of your life. It's a hard passage. I've touched on some applications. I'm confident you can find more ways to apply it to yourself. I just pray that we all take seriously what's said here. And we flee from idolatry. Let's stand.